You know what's more dangerous than somebody that doesn't know the Bible? Somebody who thinks they know the Bible when they really don't know the Bible. And I found that to be the case of so many of my evangelical commenters on my social media. They Google verses they've heard from the pulpit before, quote them as winning an argument, not realizing that they don't truly understand what a false teacher is or what Paul was talking about when he says homosexuality in the Bible or what it meant when Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say. We certainly don't understand the context of the Hebrew text, the Judaic portion of our Bible, and we don't honor it and its fidelity. And thus we use the Bible to abuse people and to condemn them in ways that aren't godly. My next guest helps set us all straight in that as he is a Bible scholar and truly a scholar that is looking at the history of the text we're looking at, where it came from, and what it truly means. And he's one of the best creators I know anywhere. Dan McClellan, Bible scholar, is my guest on the Post-Evangelical Podcast today. And as we go to talk to Dan, let me remind you that if you enjoy what I do on the podcast, in our spiritual life moments throughout the week, and everything else I do in content creation, please go to my new website, pastor-paul.com. Click that support Pastor Paul button and join our support community where you can be in the chat room with everyone. If you sign up for a little financial support, you can get all kinds of cool things and it'll just keep me enabled to continue to do the work I do here as Pastor Paul and through the Pastor Paul community. Now, let's talk to Dan McClellan and find out what this thing, the Bible, is all about on this episode of the Post Evangelical Podcast. Cool. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast, the Post Evangelical Podcast. I'm Paul. And I play Pastor Paul on TikTok. And I have another guest, or I have a guest with me today who also is a TikToker and his account is blowing up. And I highly recommend that you go watch. It's uh, at McClellan. We'll have him spell it out for you. But Dan McClellan is with me. Dan is a PhD, uh, has a PhD in theology and religion from Exeter University and is on TikTok to help combat misinformation and democratize access to information regarding the academic study of the Bible and religion. And Dan, really appreciate you joining me today. How long have you been doing TikTok? You and I are a little old for the TikTok crowd. <laughs> what got you yeah. on TikTok and how long have you been doing it? Well, you know, I, I kind of had stayed away from it for a while. I was comfortable with, uh, I had Facebook, I had Twitter, I had a little Instagram every now and then. Uh, but I saw some people sharing stuff on those other platforms from TikTok, and it seemed to me that it was mainly uh, people dancing and sharing recipes. Uh, but then I, I started to see every now and then some something about religion or the Bible, and it it uh, at first I was thinking, I hope somebody's keeping tabs on what they're doing over there. Uh, and when I saw enough of it that was overlapping with my own research interests, I decided to go take a look, just kind of lurk for a while. And I quickly realized, no, there is nobody keeping tabs on, uh, on things over, over here um, from a, uh, an academic, professional academic point of view. It is a lot of 
a lot of folks on different sides of different arguments. There are uh, deconstructionist folks. You've got the atheist folks. There's a lot of overlap there. You've got a lot of evangelical folks, apologetic folks, uh, and different groups competing for uh, attention. And I thought, you know, I might have a perspective. I might be able to uh, kind of you know, pretend I'm a referee to uh, some degree and um, and try to share scholarly perspectives. And as I got into it, I, I was seeking out videos that I could respond to. And uh, I decided this was when I saw what the interactions were like, I started to get a sense, a feel for, for how TikTok works. I realized this was also a wonderful channel for democratizing scholarship a lot more because one of the reasons there's so much misinformation is because people are going to go to where it's easiest to find information and that is generally where it is free online and that is and that is for the most part out of date stuff that's been in circulation for a long time and primarily is salient is prominent because it serves the purposes of identity politics and and generally that information from my perspective, tends to be suspect. So, um, so I started trying to um, trying to get some of the information out there and be a resource for people who are sincerely looking for more data, uh, who are interested in finding out, you know, all the different sides of the story rather than just whatever is going to serve their own particular ideological rhetorical goals. Identity politics. Imagine that. So, <laughs> so you're saying we can take the Bible and, and make it say what we need it to say if, if we're not careful. Absolutely. For um, most texts, I think we can do most large texts because, and this is something I've talked about a lot on my channel, that, that texts don't really have inherent meaning. Um, and when we argue about what a text means, we're just trying to convince each other that our case is, uh, you know, makes more sense. And because there's no real empirical anchor for a lot of what's going on in the text, uh, it's often going to come down to what resonates more with people, what feels better to them. And because of the way our minds are structured, uh, um, you know, the things that appeal to our social identities and make us feel good about those social identities and about our perspectives, the things that make us feel, hey, I'm on the right path, I have the right perspective, I am right about this, those kinds of things are going to resonate more. And so people are going to gravitate to them. Um, and that's what makes it so difficult to, to look at these questions and, and say, you know what, I'm on this side, but the data don't really support what this side is saying. And, and I've had to make a bunch of videos where I start off going, look, I support what this creator is doing. I support their rhetorical goals. <laughs> I, but I, you're wrong on this I one. I need to correct something here. And, um, and I feel bad about doing that. But I think if we don't have that in a conversation, if we only are sharing the stuff that makes us feel right, um, I think we can be pretty sure something's a little off um, from my point of view. I wanted to ask you if there was a video that sort of shows what you do from your TikTok. Is, <laughs> is there any video that you like better than another to show what you do on TikTok? Um, there's, oh gosh. 
<laughs> there's a there's a little bit of everything because um, I get tagged in other people's videos. So in the upper right, you see the kind of orange background. This is an instance where there's there's uh, someone arguing for the not only the historical reliability uh, of the Old Testament. Hey, let me show everybody. Oh. It's this one five five thirteen. Yeah, that's the one. All right, let me show everybody what you do here. Okay. There's no cheese on it. It's under the sauce. Hey everybody, the archaeological data indicate that Israel prior to the time of Josiah was unilaterally polytheistic and that no prescription of the exclusive worship of Adonai existed. What this video is arguing is that that was not the original state of affairs, that that is a corruption of the original monotheistic uh, state of early Israel. No data indicate that, however. The only thing that indicates that is later texts that we can date to the time of Josiah and the exile and the post-exilic period. So what this creator is demanding is that we just accept the dogma that those texts actually date to much earlier and are all perfectly historically accurate and basically inerrant. Again, no data support that. It's just a dogma that they must demand that you accept. So that's what you do. You, you try to, to correct those things. That's one of the main things. I, I started off saying this channel is about data, not dogma. Um, and, you know, there are, uh, I get challenged on what precisely I mean by that uh, from time to time. And the idea is basically when we're looking at, at the, the data, are we going to get pushed into a corner where we end up having to say, you know, this is just what I believe, or you just have to believe this. That's a dogma. That's something that we have no rational defense for. Now there, and I'm not saying that there is no space for that, that anybody who holds to dogmas is wrong. Uh, everybody holds to dogmas. No one can have drilled down to the foundation of every single principle that they accept. Um, <clears throat> but when push comes to shove, can you say, these are the data on which I'm basing this conclusion, or do you have to say, well, you just have to accept this belief? Um, and, and that's the main distinction that I'm trying to draw here. Uh, and, if, and, you know, for folks who want to, uh, you know, like the experience of uh, something similar to dragging a cheese grater across your face, they can go <laughs> read the comments on that video and see how frequently it comes down to, well, the, you know, the biblical texts say this. Okay, well, we can interrogate the biblical texts and we can subject them to academic scrutiny and we can arrive at conclusions regarding um, whose interests they serve, what period they came from, and we can show that these texts actually don't date to the time period uh, that they purport to. And so, that's what the data indicate. And then, you know, it, it always comes down to, well, no, you just have to believe this. Um, and, and so that's one of the main things I'm doing is confronting that kind of misinformation that is built on dogmas. Tell, tell me what your moniker is again on TikTok. I want to put it up here for people. Yeah. So it's at McClellan. And that's a phonetic spelling of my last name that I used when I was living in Uruguay as an LDS missionary. Because down there, they see my last name and they go, Makakalecha. Um, because they're not used to that consonant cluster. Um, so I spell it M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N. Play-N, okay. Cool, and I can put that up for people here. So that's, it's yeah. at M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N. Did I get it right? That's correct. 
at yeah. M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N at McClellan. And, and so, yeah, again, I'm a big fan of what you do. Uh, but part of what you do is kind of screwing me up. Uh, and particularly because, you know, no more than five years ago, I would have said you're wrong about the Bible. But a lot has changed in the last five years for a lot of us. The, the idea of monotheism in Old Testament Hebrew culture is adamantly goes against my evangelical upbringing and evangelical belief system. Explain that. How do you know they were monotheistic and, and why is that important for us to understand? Or polytheistic. Or polytheistic. I'm sorry. Yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> my mistake. <laughs> they they believe there were multiple gods, not just one god. Correct. Yeah. And there, there are a number of indications of this in the text itself. But um, what folks have done over the centuries is arrange this data to suggest that the polytheism was a corruption. This was apostate folks. But we have a number of uh, material remains from the area that indicate uh, certain things about Israel's, the, re the material reality on the ground in Israel. We have temples, um, Israelite and Judahite temples that were occupied by divine images that were dedicated to Adonai, to the God of Israel, that were uh, approved by the state. For instance, um, in southern Israel, uh, a place called Arad, there was a, uh, a military garrison on top of a hill. And in the corner, there was a temple. And we found uh, it is um, dedicated to Adonai. There are uh, texts that we found in there. There are dishes that say uh, that have an abbreviation that we believe means uh, uh, dedicated or holy to the priest, the Kohanim. Uh, we have a standing stone in the Holy of Holies that we believe was dedicated to Adonai. There are letters that refer to the temple uh, or the house of Adonai. Uh, and this temple seems to have been peacefully decommissioned around the time that uh, the Assyrian king Sennacherib was coming through because the standing stone was not destroyed. It was just laid on its side. And then the whole temple was covered in about six feet of earth. And the scholars, uh, there are two positions on this, one from the more conservative scholars, one from the, the less conservative scholars. The conservative scholars say this is Hezekiah um, cleaning up the countryside of the high places. The other scholars suggest that this is not how high places were destroyed. Nothing was destroyed, nothing was broken, nothing was shattered. It was all laid on its side and carefully covered with earth. And so the, uh, the conclusion of more critical scholars is, this is Hezekiah hiding the temple, anticipating coming back afterwards, after Sennacherib has come through, and recommissioning it. Uh, and that never happened because Sennacherib devastated uh, the landscape in northern uh, Israel and, and down in in Judah. And we have another temple that I've talked about a handful of times on uh, on my channel that was discovered uh, about five or six years ago, a place called Tel Motzah, which is just about three or four miles west of Jerusalem. If you take the, the highway that goes west from the out of the north side of Jerusalem, it kind of dips down into a little valley and keeps going. And right under the highway, uh, while they were building that highway, they discovered this temple. And this was active during the first temple period. Uh, it may be uh, 9th century, maybe uh, even earlier. And we found a bunch of uh, cultic objects there as well. 
Uh, and I'm, I know that they have reached the Holy of Holies, the excavation. I don't know what they found in there. I don't, uh. it's possible that it was um, pillaged, that there was nothing in the Holy of Holies, but I am hoping that they find something in the way of some kind of divine image. They did find a stele, a standing stone that had been broken and had been reused in the wall. That was something that happened a lot that uh, shows a depiction of what looks like a storm deity. Uh, and so Adonai is depicted in the text as a storm deity. There's a temple in Egypt that was a Judahite temple from the 5th and the 4th century BCE, a place called uh, Elephantine. And this was uh, folks who, uh, right as the uh, Judahites were going into exile, they took off in the other direction. And they hid out in Egypt. And uh, you have a military garrison, a Jewish military garrison that, um, was stationed on this island and built a temple. And you have um, material dedicated to Adonai and then Anat Adonai, which would be Adonai's consort or wife, uh, partner. And this is, would have been a female deity. So God um, is married? Well, there, that's the what the data indicate. And we also have a bunch of inscriptions from around 800 BCE. Uh, not a bunch. We have a handful that talk about Adonai and his Asherah, um, which would also be um, another version of, of uh, Adonai's um, consort or partner or wife. And I think I've shared a, a, a photo and, and a drawing that I did of one of these inscriptions that actually has drawings of Adonai and Adonai's wife underneath the inscription that refers to blessings by Adonai and his Asherah. Uh, and so this indicates that um, it was normative, the worship of Adonai, of uh, a female deity, and likely other deities, uh, was normative in this time period. And the likely opposition to this uh, comes from the king. Uh, after Sennacherib comes through and destroys pretty much all of the temples that were in and around um, Jerusalem, well, not in, but around Jerusalem, does not manage to destroy the Jerusalem temple. This creates a de facto cult centralization. It means nobody else has a temple they can go to, which means they all have to come to our temple in Jerusalem. And um, when Josiah becomes king, a, a few generations after Hezekiah, he likes the sound of that because that means all of the goods have to be funneled into Jerusalem. Right. And, and Adonai's priesthood is the sole priesthood. There was likely a priesthood for each of the deities that was represented in these temples. And um, we have a little bit preserved in the, the Bible about other deities, priesthoods, uh, like the uh, Elijah and the priests of Baal. Familiar with that story. Yeah. Uh, the very beginning of it, it actually says this is contest is going to be against the priests of Baal and the priests of Asherah. But those priests are mentioned just once at the very beginning, and they play no role whatsoever anywhere else in the story. Um, but... When those priesthoods are gone, and now we only have the, the Levites, our own priesthood, all the goods, all the attention, all the power is focused uh, in Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem. And so thus begins a campaign to suggest this is the way it's supposed to be. This is the way God wants it to be. And scholars suggest that this is where the book of Deuteronomy originates. Mm. This, so we have this story where Josiah says, hey, we were doing some renovations, and guess what we found? This law. 
and we've been ignoring it the whole time. So oh gonna, my goodness, we're going to go ahead and implement all these rules, and we can't find any indication of the specific laws that Josiah wants to implement anywhere outside of the book of Deuteronomy, suggesting that this book was probably composed in an effort to restructure the cult uh, and uh, the priesthood and what's expected of everybody. Wow. And then when you get into the exile and beyond, it gets further elaborated on. It just continues to accumulate uh, more and more. Hi, guys. I hope you let me interrupt this great conversation. You can help support what I do in the Pastor Paul community to tell everybody this message that God is not mad at you. And to do that, you can do that through my new website, pastor-paul.com. Now, I've had a Patreon page for a long time, and many of you who support me through Patreon have said, don't love Patreon. If you go to pastor-paul.com, and if you click on that support Pastor Paul link, it'll show you how you can subscribe, just like you would on Patreon at different levels of different involvement you want to have with the community. And it's all for profit, by the way. We don't take up tithes in any of our meetings. We don't pass around the offering plate. And I'm not beholden to donors who can say, say this and don't say that. I am working through a for-profit company. You won't get a tax deduction for what you give, but that's important to me that I do this in a for-profit mode because I want to be able to honor the laws of the land and not violate the 501c3 covenant that not-for-profit corporations should have with culture, a, a, a covenant that I believe many, many churches violate with their politics and with the way they spend their money. Will you help? Pastor-Paul.com is the website. Click on the link that says support Pastor Paul, and I will be forever grateful and give you some cool gifts for that as well. Now, let's get back to this great conversation we're having about the Bible with Dan McClellan, Bible scholar from TikTok, here on the Post-Evangelical Podcast. You are running the story of Josiah here now. I yeah, I get a, I catch a lot of flack for that. Um, it's funny. A lot of the, your perspective depends on the tradition you're in. Like, right. I don't know how you feel about Herod the Great. Like, I, I was not—he's a pretty evil character. I was not raised um, in any religion, uh, and when I joined the LDS Church when I was twenty, um, you know, just being a member of the church for the last twenty years. I have developed this sense that this is a bad person. Right. Um, first time I went to Israel, I was visiting a lot of the sites, seeing a lot of the presentations, and Herod is not perceived as a bad person there because the tradition has no reason to vilify him. He was a king who engaged in a lot of building projects, brought a lot of wealth into the- into He was a developer for sure. Yeah, innovated a lot of new approaches to uh, you know, civic construction and all this kind of stuff. And so I, I see these presentations and I'm like, I wanna, I wanna be like, boo, hiss, bad guy, but they're presenting him as, as someone who was um, you know, just uh, a king who did a lot of good things for-, for did, he, did he kill all the two-year-olds and under in Bethlehem? <laughs> You know, there's there's no evidence for that. Um, and that would be a pretty crazy thing for someone to uh, to do. And, yeah, we, I would think there would be data uh, to support that. Mm. Is, uh, is, there, 
that's an interesting point. I'm sorry to interrupt you, and I want to come no, back no, to that. No. I do, do want so help me understand because you're much smarter than me and much more educated than me. <laughs> that so Adonai is a name of God, like Elohim is a is a different God, or is that another name of the same God? How does all that work? So we've got a bunch of different names for God. Adonai is is I I um while I'm on TikTok, while I'm in um, kind of the the public eye. I have decided that I'll that I'll use that um, substitution for the divine name. In scholarship, we use the divine name regularly. Christian, Jewish, non-religious, other scholars use it regularly. But I've, I've gotten some pushback, so I've, I've agreed to just uh, I'm going to just use Adonai. But that's the okay. Tetragrammaton Yod Hey Bab Hey. Uh, as far as we know, that's the the personal name of the God of Israel. Thank you guys all for joining. Dan McClellan is my guest. He's at McClellan. He's somebody that reveres the Bible, but is giving us a way to look at it that says, hey, this, this is how it has more historicity, and you can make a better case for, for the understanding of your perspective of it. So we were talking about there being more than one God in the consciousness of, of the ancient Hebrew and its and the text upon which our Christian scripture is founded. Um, and, and you talk about uh, the creation story where God says, let us make man in our image. Mm -hmm. And of course, as, as Christians and in evangelicalism, we say, well, he's talking to the Trinity. Jesus is there. Holy Spirit is there. These three beings. Right. You think that may not be exactly the truth? Uh, I I think that may not exactly be the truth. There are actually a handful of places in the uh, what we call the primeval history, Genesis one through eleven, where you have this reference to other deities, and they they do refer to plural deities, which kind of uh, complicates the Trinitarian understanding a bit. Of it's not three persons and one deity; it's they're referring to multiple deities. You have uh, the situation in Genesis one twenty six. And most scholars believe this is a vestigial reference to the divine council, uh, which is basically the uh, the council of other deities that uh, God uses to make decisions. We see stories about this in 1 Kings 22, where Micaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting on the uh, throne. Uh, Isaiah says, uh, says the same thing. We have Jeremiah asking who has stood in the council of Adonai. Um, and this divine council is made up of the other deities of uh, the the heavens, and they are the patron deities of the other nations of the earth. Um, and we also find this in, in Genesis 3. So uh, the serpent says, you will be like the gods knowing good and evil. And then later at verse 22, we have God saying, the man has become like one of us. Mm. Uh, and then in Genesis 6, you have the reference to the B'nai Elohim, the, the children of God who come down and, and uh, father children with the daughters of humanity. Uh, and then you also have in the Tower of Babel story, uh, you have a reference to uh, another reference to us. And one of the things that, this, that these stories seem to be doing, at least in the beginning, and I can, I can talk a little bit more about the divine council and the other early evidence for that. The Genesis stories, these are probably 7th, 6th century. So just before the exile into the exile, they seem to pop up everywhere that humanity is about to um, encroach on the boundaries of divinity. 
So when they said the man has become like one of us, kick him out. Otherwise, he'll eat the tree and live forever. And, and immortality is one of the prototypical features of deity. And so this is basically a way to say they're getting a little too close to deity. We got to get rid of them. Same thing in Genesis 6. The children of God are having uh, children with the human women. And these are going to be, um, you know, uh, demigods to some degree. Yeah. Okay, we got to get rid of them. Uh, they're building a, a tower that is going to make a name for them, and it's going to touch the heavens. And if they can do this, then nothing will be outside of their reach. They will have all power, another prototypical feature of deity, okay, frustrate their plans. And so the, the primeval history seems to show humanity encroaching upon deity, about to break down the door, and God, in consultation with the other gods, is is there to stop them is there to frustrate the plans that's one way to look at what's going on in in the primeval history that i think uh scholars are are taking a, a harder look at this and i and i hope i think there will be some some interesting um stuff coming out of that so, so is it a plausible argument to say that's that's a trinitarian reference or 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 somewhat implausible <laughs> I, and um, I know you don't want to say yes or no, this is the way it has to be, but... Right, right. I, I, I think this is, that's what the preponderance of evidence would support. I don't think the preponderance of evidence would support a Binitarian or a Trinitarian uh, view. And one of the other reasons that we know there was a divine council is because they're referenced in many other places in the, in the scriptures. In fact, many of the places where you find these um, kind of cryptic... Um, plural imperatives, uh, hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, that kind of stuff. Uh, this is stock divine counsel language that when we kind of try to shove the divine counsel down into angelic statics, status, which is something that Psalm 82 tries to um, accomplish by condemning the gods of the nations, um, that's where uh, we kind of depose the divine counsel and the that language that give ear here that kind of gets um, secularized. It gets de-deified, uh, and then it turns into references to angels in later literature. Uh, but we have indications in earlier literature that Adonai was understood to have a purview that ended at the boundaries of Israel and that other deities occupied the other nations. And those were their pur purviews. And uh, for instance, in, in Judges 11, you have Jephthah goes to negotiate with uh, the Ammonites. And he says, uh, you possess all that land that your deity Chemosh has given to you, has conquered for you. And we will possess all the land that our deity Adonai has conquered for us. Mm. So, uh, so would that then be that those other deities aren't necessarily evil? They were just forbidden for the Israelites. Yeah, they were they were the deities of other nations. You don't worship another nation's deity unless you're in that nation. For instance, Naaman, when he goes back to Syria after he's been healed, what does he take with him? Takes two cartloads of Israelite earth, and he says, so that when I am in the temple... I can worship Adonai. 
because you can't worship Adonai when you are away from Israelite soil. So he just decides to take the soil with him. Uh, similarly, when uh, David is being pursued by Saul, there's the part where David sneaks in while Saul's asleep um, and takes his spear and then goes, you know, runs down the valley, runs up the hill on the other side and starts yelling at him. And he says, You're uh, and, and basically he's being pushed to the boundaries of Israel. He's going to be run out of Israel. He says, you are forcing me to worship other gods, mm. pushing me out of Adonai's inheritance. And this is a reference to Deuteronomy 32, 8, where we have Elyon dividing up the nations according to the children of God. Adonai's portion is Jacob, Israel, his inherited share. And so while we have this later notion of Adonai as God over the whole earth, we have the, a clear indication that they did not understand Adonai's purview to extend beyond the borders of Israel. And the, the controversial passage, I get in trouble every time I talk about it because a lot of people really don't like this. Get in trouble. Go ahead. Come is, on. Um, is 2 Kings uh, 3.27. You have the story of the uh, coalition, the Judahite Israelite Edomite coalition that goes into Moab. Moab has thrown off vassalage. And when that happens, you've got to go punish them. You've got to show them they can't do that. And so we're destroying the cities left and right. And then we get to um, um, Kiryat, Yari, I forget the name of the city. Um, but we have the Moabite king is there. And the, uh, you know, the King James Version says something like the battle was, was sore or something like that. But basically, they're about to take the city. And so the king sacrifices his firstborn the one who's going to reign in his stead on the city wall. And immediately there is great fury, Ketzef Gadol, against Israel, and they they retreat. And this Ketzef Gadol, um, it is used in narratives. It is only ever used to refer to divine fury. And so whose divine fury is this? And scholars have uh, used to argue about this. Most scholars are in pretty wide agreement now, um, you know, TikTok commenters have not come around to the consensus yet, <laughs> but most scholars are in agreement that the idea that the author is embarrassed about, not really happy about having to represent it, but the idea is that the sacrifice worked and the uh, Moabite patron deity Chemosh ran off the Israelites because mm. they were outside the purview of their deity. They were in the purview of another deity. And we have the opposite when Sennacherib comes to Jerusalem. Because what happens, I, you have Isaiah and Hezekiah, they're praying, they're doing all this stuff. And then Adonai sends a destroying angel that kills 180,000 of Sennacherib's soldiers, and he has to up and leave before he is able to take the city. It's a parallel um, story. They, uh, Hezekiah threw off vassalage, they came in to punish him. The deity ran off the invading army. It's the same story told from uh, two different perspectives. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating stuff because you know we we've sort of demystified all of this now, and you know even but even in our own text, we know the Egyptians had gods that could turn sticks into snakes. Uh, it just so <laughs> happened that Moses' snake was able to eat the other ones, but uh, the the evidence <laughs> of, of beliefs in multiple gods is is all over the place. And even Paul says, "Hey, I see all your." your worship to these other gods. And he doesn't necessarily say it's evil that you do that. He just says, and let me tell you about mine, you know, and, and the one that you may not know about. And, 
So I just, I think it's, uh, it, it, it makes, what it does for me is it starts to say, I don't have to call other religions evil necessarily. I can, I can start to, to give room for people to have different beliefs than me. And that's, and that's an interesting concern because there's been a lot of criticism of the concept of monotheism because if you believe there, there is only one deity, you can't really tolerate um, other belief systems or so the, the logic goes. Uh, but there's been some interesting research that has, has shown that um, monotheistic belief systems or beliefs in universal deities some they can um, they can reduce cooperation and in some circumstances they can increase cooperation and it depends on whether or not the belief system focuses on the individual's responsibility to the deity as a universal deity or whether it focuses on the individual's responsibility to the institution and to the organization and its boundaries mm. and um, and so depending on which is the priority for the belief system monotheism may be either it may increase cooperation or it may increase conflict and, and violence mm. but um but yeah if you can uh, make room for that like paul says in first corinthians a there are many gods and many lords but for us there yep. is is one god um i think that's a uh, that uh, we gloss over that a lot. Or, or he'll say to those who believe, which then to me seems to indicate he's saying for us, this mm -hmm. is important, maybe not for them. Yeah. And this uh, is, um, there's, there's a lot of rhetoric in the Bible that we don't like to take as rhetoric unless it serves our, our own rhetorical goals. And the one I, uh, a lot of people bring up Deutero Isaiah is denying the existence of other gods. Um, and Deuteronomy um, occasionally as well. But alongside this, these gods are nothing, there are no other gods. You also have rhetoric saying these countries are nothing and less than nothing. That's not an insistence that they don't exist. Or you have um, the personified Babylon or Moab saying, I am and there is no other. And this is not an assertion that they are the only cities that exist. This is rhetoric. This is like me saying the Raiders aren't a real football team. <laughs> now, if that gets written gotcha. in scripture somewhere, and I believe it should, <laughs> uh, 2,000 years from now, is somebody going to say this is a belief system that held that the Raiders did not exist? Right. And as right. much as, as I might want people to believe that in the future, it's just rhetoric. Um, and so I, I wish we could be a little more um, willing to let their texts operate on their own terms. And I think a lot of times that's what they're doing. They're, they're being rhetorical. Well, that's beautiful. It, it's, uh, his name's Dan McClellan. It's at McLellan, I like to say, M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N. You can see that on YouTube right now. Um, and go check out his TikTok stuff. What, what are the things that you have to correct the most often? Ah, <sighs> that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think you run into a lot, I guess. Underlying most of what I run into is this presumption of univocality, that the Bible speaks with one unified and consistent voice. And I think whether it is uh, slavery or whether it is other gods or whether it is uh, homosexuality, whatever, Almost always, it comes down to somebody is presupposing that this text written in 800 BCE over here 
must mean the exact same thing as this text written in 75 CE in another country in another language. We take Levitical and, law and we connect it to 1 Corinthians 6 or 1 Timothy 1 in the case yeah. of homosexuality. Yeah, we want everything to speak with the same voice because it complicates the way we deploy these texts for rhetorical purposes if someone can say, well, that's just what the, uh, you know, the author of P thought. The author of D thought something completely different. And then you've got this non-P author over here who thinks something wildly different. And that's before we even start talking about Enoch or uh, the Book of Jubilees or something like that. It's, once we start talking about all the different perspectives, writing for different reasons, hoping to achieve different goals, it makes it really messy and it makes it really hard for us to deploy the text in defense of our identity politics. Wow, what a fascinating conversation with Dan McClellan. I went on to ask Dan about Adam and Eve. Do we take them literally or are they an allegorical story? How about the Tower of Babel? Who was Paul talking to and how do we interpret what he meant in the context of his culture? Dan and I talk about all of that in a bonus episode that you can get as a member of the Pastor Paul support community. How do you become a member? Go to pastor-paul.com. Click on that support Pastor Paul link, and it'll show you how to sign up and get to the community chat board where you can find the link. Already a supporter of the Pastor Paul community, just go log into your account, go to the community chat board. It'll tell you how to get the bonus episode. We didn't stop talking. We kept going for about another 20 minutes, and you can hear all of it as a member of the Pastor Paul support community. Go to pastor-paul.com and click on that support Pastor Paul link, and it'll take you there. Thanks for joining me on the Post-Evangelical Podcast. Check out the bonus podcast, and we'll talk to you all again soon, even discussing this podcast over on the community chat room where you can ask me questions and interact with me every single day in the Pastor Paul's support community. Have a great day, everyone.